This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mringa. And I'm Luke Olivier Dumablet. And our topic this week is... My foray into Swift on the backend with Vapor 4. Oh, interesting. Uh, but first, we have some follow-up, and I will let Luke Olivier go first. Yes, and my follow-up is about our last episode. Between this episode and the last one, I was able to watch two of your videos ah. uh, regarding Caesura, Uh And I would like to congratulate you because they're pretty good. Uh, I know, I'm not sure if you want to share that, but too late because I didn't tell you about this. But uh, I know you had some concerns about uh, some... Uh, quality aspect of the production and i don't think you should worry too much because they were pretty great and pretty high on the comparison list to the ones you've got inspired from Mm -hmm. so um it's kind of a random compliment and i'm sure you were not expecting but you really deserve it because i'm eagerly awaiting this week's episode, which, when you hear my voice, it should be out if I understand the scheduling. This week is not a Scissora video. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I remember you talked to me about the scheduling, but I was kind of like, I was. I both yeah. watched them today on the day of the... Uh, the there will the be video, report. but it won't be a Scissora video. Um, d- just very quickly, I do actually want to summarize sort of what my negative points were or my worries were leading up to the launch of the videos. So... Uh, for the first video, I just thought it was going to be relatively boring because even though it's like 17 minutes long, most of it does not involve looking at anything interesting visually. And I think it's kind of a risk to launch a video series with an episode that is not particularly interesting to watch. It is just an information dump, which it's like prerequisite information that you need for subsequent episodes. So it's sort of like a necessary evil, but it's like objectively a boring episode to watch. Uh, I would beg to differ on that. Maybe it's a visually boring episode yeah. even then, but I, I think it put out important points for your goals for this project. Mm-hmm. And that I think is important to set, especially not, not for the video series, but especially for the app series. You kind of like, uh, I felt at least watching it that you were kind of in your product manager mode. Like, okay, here's what I want to do. Here's what are going to be the, the development phases even. And. We'll go through it with the video series at the same time. So yeah. I really enjoyed that. And again, some of the info we ch- we talked about in the last episode and some of the other part that people will also be allowed to see through uh, in the coming weeks, uh, we kind of chatted offline too. So I was really eager to see how you would transfer the content we discussed into video form. And I think you did great. Yeah. The second thing that uh, I want to mention about the, the video uh, before we move on to the next item of follow-up is... Uh, right now it's kind of weird because all of the functionality that I'm showing off has already been implemented. So I'm not actually like doing any live coding. I'm explaining what the code that is actually there does. I'm, and I'm sort of pretending that I'm walking you through, we're implementing this feature, but all the code is there. It's implemented. I'm just showing you what it does. Um, and I think. It might be more interesting for the viewer if it was closer to a live coding video where I say, okay, well, we're going to try this out, run it in the simulator, or I guess not on the Mac, but run uh, debug builds of the app and look at what works and what doesn't, and then fix it uh, with a more natural feedback loop than you would with the first two videos that that I've released so far. So starting from episode seven you are going to have videos that are built from footage that was recorded while I was implementing the fo- the features, uh, which is going to be a different 
thing and a different style of video. And I'm looking forward to seeing how people react to that when that comes out in like, I don't know how many weeks. Uh, because that's <laughs> the problem is I have, I still have to fill up the backlog of episodes three to six, uh, that don't exist yet, uh, before I get to episode seven. Um, but I do have like the, those episodes planned out. I just haven't produce them yet and i think that recording the footage while i actually do the uh the implementing of the functionality is actually going to save a lot of production time because i don't have to reverse engineer what i have to record from the code that's there i can just record it and then cut out the bits that i need good uh, my other point about the video themselves is especially about uh tour number two uh, library management uh, mm-hmm. and i think i think it is this one where you go really deeper into the uh, app architecture you decided and i know this was a topic we discussed in the last episode and uh without not going on to a full app architecture episode yet again i i feel that you explain a lot of your thoughts about like let's make it work yeah. And then I can evolve it. And I think too, personally, after the code example you've shown that you don't need that much thing to change. I think you're like closely there with the way you use FMDB and the way you could possibly centralize that into a state manager or whatever you want to name it and slowly but surely get rid of those NS notification center notification. Uh, so like, don't beat yourself too much. I think you're like close to something that you could easily centralize and uh, share throughout your application. Just need a couple of tweaks there. Yeah, and I've been reading a lot of open source Mac code recently uh, to nice. try and get a better idea of what I should be doing. Uh, so there should be changes eventually. Uh, but again, like the whole management of juggling implementing features but not wanting to have too too much of a backlog of videos to produce and vice versa is kind of a mess right now. By the end of the year, <laughs> I should be fully caught up, uh, but it's complicated right now. <laughs> is that it? Yes, it is. Okay, uh, I have one item of follow-up for episode 129, which is about cloud gaming services. Uh, interestingly enough, this week, GeForce Now launched on Xbox, uh, which means that you can now hmm. play uh, certain streamed PC games over the cloud via GeForce Now on your Xbox. However, there is a notable omission, which is uh, even though you can play Sony-published PC games, uh, previous PlayStation exclusives uh, like Death Stranding and Horizon Zero Dawn and all that stuff, which are, uh, I think, God of War now, uh, which were distributed through Steam. Uh, those do not show up in searches on the Xbox because that would technically be breaking console exclusivity deals for the PlayStation, uh, which is strange. Um, but that's just the thing that's going on. And of course, uh, that sort of brought a bunch of backlash from gamers because they'll complain at literally anything you put in front of them. Uh, (laughs) So I just thought that was interesting because it's a weird angle we haven't really seen. And one of the things that I saw uh, pop up a lot during the Epic lawsuit is uh, people were saying, like, it's kind of dumb that Microsoft is complaining that uh, xCloud isn't allowed on iOS because Xbox would never allow third-party cloud streaming services of games on their store and we've seen that uh through the edge browser you can access stadia and through and now there's actually a geforce now app on xbox uh so that's not true at all uh, microsoft is welcoming with open arms uh these cloud streaming services except sometimes tiny little uh exceptions like sony published games not being playable have to be coded in so that uh console distribution deals are kept uh according to contract so that is your fun tin bit for this week on the cloud streaming front 
let's move on to the main topic. Good. Are you excited, worried to know why did I do backend development recently? I'm kind of concerned, yeah. Concern? Okay, that, that that's good, I guess. I guess. Uh, but yes, yeah, so in the recent weeks, um, you'll see why in just a bit, but in about the uh, span of five to seven work days, um, I really was a backend developer and um i had the task of migrating a project made with vapor 3 to vapor 4 so that we can evolve it uh and without going into too much details of what this project is about because it's about work but um it is more or less like recently we had our our annual like dev department summit uh which because of the pandemic, it's virtual, and there always has been a kind of like coding aspect to it. So that's when I took the opportunity to modernize this code base. And to give you a perspective of what this code base is about, is that a couple of years back, um, we were using uh, App uh, as a crash logging tool and also as an internal app store and you might recall i didn't take the exact number uh, episode number but we also discuss uh the migration from rcap to visual studio app center in a previous episode of limitless possibility so during that migration at work it was decided by a colleague of mine that um while app center's uh app apps distribution was okay uh was not really evolve or modernize compared to what Akiap as to uh, were offering it was more or less the same thing but the UI in the web view was not really improved too much that uh, we could explore building our own solution uh, and my colleague at that point uh, uh, decided that he was also curious about Swift in the back end and Vapor at that time which, at, which was at version 3 was kind of the I would say because the more community-driven uh, tool, it was also had a business aspect that we will talk a bit later because it will be uh, discussed when we talk about the other backend framework using the Swift language. Uh, but that seems to be the one that, that was the most popular, let's put it this way. And that's when, uh, in early 2019, uh, my colleague decided to more or less build that as a side project. And after a couple of weeks, I should say, uh, Immortalite made a tailor-made solution based on development cycle to store our internal builds. And one of the big difference between what we used to use, uh, which was Hockey and with that tool, is that tool was uh, providing a custom iOS app too. Um, I think in the past, Akiap used to have an iOS app and then it disappeared then, or I think it, maybe iOS broke it and then they really never updated it. And even with Visual Studio App Center, they never really brought that back. And for obvious reasons, um, those tools are cross-platform. So I'll, I wouldn't be surprised to have to have an iOS app, an Android app. Uh, and I guess if you have a website that can do the installation for you, why not do that? But uh, one of the main thing that this app offers is like all the like you see all your list of like a a, a list view of all the builds. So as you might imagine, this service what it does is it receives event from our CI pipeline, which will uh, give it IP files uh, that are stored in an S3 bucket, uh, and this uh, CI 
the event that is triggered from CI is for uh, is for sure deployed by Fastlane. Uh, so we also built the third component from this custom-made solution, which is a Fastlane plugin to do the upload for us to our service. And then those builds gets registered. They show up in the iOS app. They also get notified on Slack. And we have a, a, a live stream of builds that you can get notified and download uh locally on your ipad to test features and have our qa team and our dev team uh, play with different types of builds and also different versions of our application internally uh, so following that that work that was done in early 2019 uh, we kind of deployed it everybody's been happy from the users we've received a um, couple of user requests or feature requests i should say uh, and that's also when, around that time that my colleague Bertrand was really into that, I kind of started to look into it. And I recalled, my memory is a bit vague, even when I was trying to write my notes this week in preparation for this episode, I was struggling to remember when I did that. But at some point in the past two years, uh, Ray Wondelik, the amazing uh, iOS and mobile development learning platform and learning website, uh was allowing you i wasn't sure if it was about vapor itself or was just swift in general but i recall that a lot of their uh online lessons and online tutorial were free for a weekend so it was it was then that i started to look into vapor tree for a whole weekend and i felt pretty confident about it but then i tried to use the feature request from our QA and other devs and try to bring new functionality to this program, uh, to this service, I should say. And I always felt that kind of like I was not like comfortable enough in the end to properly understand it. So knowing that the couple of changes at work, I was looking to revisit this project and knowing that we will have more applications into it. And I was really wanting to go through the feature request list that has been more or less parked for the last two years. I was talking with Bertrand again and I was like, hey, I'm kind of interested in doing something for that. Like what you suggest. And one of the first thing that was brought into mind is that, yeah, we should literally take the time to modernize it from Vapor 3 to Vapor 4. Um, and... That's when the fun journey started. <laughs> but before I go into the journey of migrating, I kind of want to talk a bit about Vapor itself because uh, Vapor, yes, it is a umbrella term. There's a lot behind it, uh, but it is, at least in the uh, way we're using it, it's kind of a composed of three framework. First one is literally Vapor itself, which is a server-side Swift HTTP web framework. And I'm literally reading from the GitHub description. So that's usually where it would manage your routing, your server things, and then you, you could do your HTTP calls. So one thing that it allows you to do quite easily is, especially for an API-based application like we're like I was building or working with is you define your route. So let's say you have API slash V1 slash builds. Uh, and this API should be a get HTTP endpoint where you get a JSON payload describing all the builds in the system. So it easily allows you to build those endpoints and work with the data in such a way that empower what in such a way that makes swift real great uh, a lot of it whether it is to 
encode or decode query parameters, the payload you want to return, the HTTP responses, and things alike are based on the powerful feature that is encodable and decodable protocol from the Swift Foundation library. So whether you want, in most cases, want it to be encoded in JSON and decoded into JSON, it does that for you. But it does mean that when you build your routes, you don't work with raw JSON, or even if we talk about the Objective-C land of things, you work with like dictionaries of values. You will work with real object that the frameworks allows you to uh, convert quite easily by more or less making a call. It's like, hey, uh, I want to get my data and then assume that it's following this format. And if there's like encoding issues, it returns error to API users uh, and such like. So taking Vapor as the base framework, we can layer two things. And I think uh, the first one we'll talk about is leaf because again uh, yannick you might have uh, experience with other things uh, other similar tools like leaf but more or less leaf is a templating language uh for vapor oh, i didn't know that was a thing but that's cool okay yeah no but i was i was about to say like there are multiple templating language yeah. for web application i even forgot the, which one we're using for uh for a website for limipo um I but, don't even remember myself. <laughs> <laughs> I know we, we use Markdown, but I forgot the other one uh, that we use. But oh well, uh, we use one. Uh, but more or less, this allows you to do templating for a lot of shit. Uh, and I, one thing I'm like, I'm still not there. You're in my understanding of the whole concept and the whole uh, the whole system or the whole way the system works. Uh, but again, I'm a bit surprised that they have created one. For sure, again, their twist to it is it works deeply with the powerfulness or the expressiveness of Swift. But thinking about it in preparation for this episode, I was like, could you have done that with uh, on top of another current templating language? Like, do you really need to create a new one that uh, just for the sake of working with Swift, um, it or miss? But again, uh, Leaf works totally fine we also use it for that so a couple of uh examples where you could use it for example part of our registering process we need to send an email the email the HTML from the html from the email is a leaf template depending on who's authenticated or not or trying to create yourself from your request we can pass in the data in it and things alike one of the issues that a lot of these templating languages run into is that they can't really cross over too well from uh, due to language b- barriers because they often embed the programming language that they are based on within themselves, right? So like uh, right. if you go back to the old, old days of PHP where basically PHP was a templating language to many people uh, because mm. you were just putting your scripts in line in the page, which people luckily grew out of that to a certain degree. Uh, <laughs> like you can't, take the PHP templating language and dump it into, let's say, Ruby without re-implementing PHP. And you generally don't want to do that. And there's a reason that a lot of these languages are high-level languages that can evaluate strings dynamically, right? Uh, Because it's a lot easier to do templating languages like that. Uh, I think what we use on the Lumipo website, I haven't checked, but I'm pretty sure, is just Mustache. And Mustache is very, very simple Mm, as a templating language because it basically just lets you loop data structures 
and display information and you can't just dump random code in there. You have to bake an object that you pass to the mustache thing and it just presents the information. And because of that, it's very, very fast and very simple and cross-platform, which is great. Now that you mentioned it, I'm 100% sure that we're using mustache. That makes sense. We've talked about it so much uh, offline, you and I, about mustache. And even in CJAP project, I think we use it together. Yeah, it started around the time that we were in college, right? So I think that one is a very flexible language. But if you look at a lot of other uh, templating languages out there, because they embed a language within themselves, it's very hard to reuse these things. So you see a lot of things with like shared DNA or shared philosophy going from one language to the other, uh, but not necessarily directly cross-compatible. So I I think that can add some context to what you were saying about uh, Leaf right there. Right, right. Again, um, with my experience of it, like you need nowadays you need to use templating tools and and templating language for a lot of things on the web it makes your web page easier to reuse and things like same thing with our uh your our html for our email we sent we can pass in data and hopefully it doesn't say hello i forgot the exact syntax but i think it's like curly braces curly braces name curly braces Mm -hmm. curly braces uh i'm sure dollar sign uh, name oh yeah or things alike where you receive an email like oh yeah their templating ninja screwed up something or their web app screwed up something so for the limited experience i have with it it works uh even part of migrating uh this was one of the things where it, it was like it just works i think they changed one uh thing in the syntax so we had to update i had to update uh, one of the template files, uh, but the role was kind of like you l- read the documentation. It kind of works like most of other templating languages. So if you're familiar with on one, you just need to understand and learn the uh, syntax for this one, and then you apply it. So in theory, if you don't have a need to have a backend uh, or no, excuse me, a database based application like this project I'm talking about is, you could just do a static or yeah, you could use a statically type, uh, statically generated website with it, or you could just do a dynamically generated website with it, uh, and have a blog and things like without the database. And Leaf would be one of the tools you would use if you wanted to make it a vapor app. Do you know if Leaf uh, pages are pre-compiled at build time or if they're done at runtime? Ooh, you're asking a good question. If I recall correctly. They end up being copied next. Oh, that's a good question. If they are included part of the binary, or they're included as resources next to the binary, and I think, yeah, I think it's the latter. Because like in in .NET, it's kind of a hybrid approach, or at least the way we had it at work was a hybrid approach where, uh, like the .cshtml files, which were the template files, were copied into the project and pushed to the server, but then. Once you ran it once, it got just in time compiled and you basically had that in memory. So even if you changed the file, it wouldn't necessarily reload because it was jitted in the memory of the process space. So it's like it's kind of compiled, but also kind of not. Because like one of the issues that you have with uh, templating languages that embed languages is often they don't go into the uh, compile path when you build the project and you don't get warnings and errors about mm-hmm. things that broke in your templated code that use the language or your libraries because they're technically not part of the code even though they are code right uh, so that that can be a danger when migrating projects from one framework to another 
don't quote me on that, but I would assume that they're more dynamic. I don't think mm. they get um, they get compiled uh, because when I ran from Xcode and I did a couple of changes, you just like run and run and it, it like it would change again. But I know it could be based on the way they kind of do the Xcode integration because it's a bit strange. Mm. But but yeah, so I don't really know to be honest. Okay, so that's mainly uh, for Le- about Leaf. And last but not least, uh, because as I mentioned, the app we're talking about today is database-based. We need to talk to the database. And you could do that with raw SQL, which is fine, but uh, you could run into security issues, especially if you do uh, improper uh, parameter injection. So you can have SQL injection uh, base if you know excuse me if you're not escaping your parameters you could turn into that so uh, vapor has built a no rm so an object creation manager to do queries model generation for also uh it is really database type agnostic so it can be for no sql database it could be for sql database but it, it is a really good at abstracting which database type you're talking to and that is one thing i really enjoy with my experience with Fluent and Vapor is that uh, I could even write database migration and this using objects and also in such a way uh, that I don't really care if it's a Postgres database or MySQL database. It will just do what it makes sense of uh, the migration. Again, it does mean that not all type of database migration can be represented by this abstraction layer. Uh, but I think the bare bones things can be. And you always have access with your different database drivers to the real database type uh, as an object. And then those can expose more properties or more, uh, not proper, yeah, more properties or more tools and functionalities that let's say a Postgres uh, database can do versus a MySQL database. Uh, and just for the curious minds, uh, this project was using uh, Postgres. So taking those three frameworks, which, as you might expect, have a lot of dependencies, uh, Vapor, as being Swift, is really heavily dependent in uh, Swift Package Manager. This is really my first experience with a Swift uh, NAP based or a Swift Package Manager based application meaning that you don't have an xcode project you don't have um um or even a workspace uh and especially with swift 5 you can just tell xcode to open this directory it sees the package.swift uh manifest and it is able to ma- more or less give you a project without having to generate uh, Xcode proj. Uh, this is one of the improvement of Swift of Vapor 4 and moving to Swift 5 point, I think for the Vapor version I used, which already changed uh, because of the release of 5.5 uh, recently, was using Swift 5.4. Uh, and I think it was using the package manager definition of Swift 5.2, which I forgot to update. That's on my to-do list, but I digress. So it does mean that, for example, uh, you don't have to ask the Vapor CLI to generate a local Xcode project, no more for you. You can really uh, take advantage of those new Swift Package Manager functionalities. And it was pretty neat. Um, while we, I've used on an iOS app dependencies with Swift Package Manager, uh, 
the project that I was that I'm working on still kind of like heavily based on the Nixcode projects, Ixi frameworks, uh, a workspace, I should say, excuse me, and things alike. So it does mean that by doing it this way and having uh, not having to create an export project, you kind of are closer to what you should do because in theory with Vapor 3, the idea was that you, you always use the Swift command line to compile your application and things alike. And all of the things you do in Inkscope were adding another exception on top of that. Um, so if we move to the migration step, um, I should say, I shouldn't say that, but in theory, because Vapor projects are all based on Swift Package Manager, the easiest way to, or the fastest way to migrate from three to four is just to change your dependencies in Swift Package Manager. But as you might imagine, once you do that, you get red errors everywhere. And That's I think usually that, how it goes, yeah? I, yeah, I guess, I guess. Uh, but because you're changing a lot of framework at once, I think it's it was kind of a overwhelming. Um, mm. And I was a bit surprised that I decided to tackle this project as my kind of relearning experience <laughs> with Vapor. Because hear me out. As I mentioned in the intro, uh, I kind of started to use tutorials to learn Vapor. And in the end, when I wanted to do a feature, I felt that I was like, okay, I followed the tutorial, but don't. since I named the tutorial a follow, I don't want to say that it's a bad tutorial. But what I realized recently, and that uh, tutorial was one of the examples, and it's not the only one, but... I realized that what happens these days when I follow tutorial is I follow and I'm super happy because I was like, okay, it's end of chapter one. I really did what they asked me to do. But it's not like if I, I could be me how I learned too, but I feel that when you follow tutorial, they, they ask you, do this, do that, do this, do that. And then poof, you have kind of a working mini. Like I think a lot of it was based on a, a to-do list, a to-do app. You don't really build your build your knowledge of the concepts and build your skills in such a way that you kind of like get the sense of how this framework works it's like oh yeah they ask you to do this you do it and you don't re- like I, one thing i realized is because a tutorial is telling me what to do i kind of don't, don't develop my critical skills i think that's the best way to say it yeah there's a video series from uh, Game Maker's Toolkit that uh, started quite recently called Developing, where uh, Mark Brown, who runs the Game Maker's Toolkit uh, YouTube channel, uh, is making his first video game uh, because Ooh. he spent like three years or whatever working on the channel, making videos about game design. But like the funny thing behind it all is he's never technically been a game designer. He's just been studying game design. He finally wants to put it to the test. And he's been saying like, oh, I've been reading all of these Unity tutorials and all of this stuff. And like, I've made Flappy Bird like 60 times in these stupid <laughs> tutorials. And I went to go sit down and make my own game. And I have no clue what to do because the only thing I know how to do is to make Flappy Bird. I don't know what any of the underlying concepts are. Uh, and he had to completely change his learning approach to actually like absorb concepts in a way that could actually lead him to thinking about these concepts in a way that can lead to developing a game that was not strictly speaking Flappy Bird, uh, which sounds like what you're describing. Uh, no, I think you're correct because while this, I don't want to call it a technique, but what happened in this experience uh, made me realize this 
I had a base and I know I had, I had a project which was move this project from three to four. Uh, but the main reason I was really motivated, because again, like I said, you change the SPM dependencies and then you end up with like 200 errors. Yeah. Not the most motivating thing to do. Really not. But when I started, and even when I decided to tackle this, I was like, let's take that as a learning exercise. I'm sure that the changes, and even when I was reading the the, the upgrade guide, which was way too short, and we'll talk about <laughs> the documentation after. That is also usual for web frameworks. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a bit of a gray zone, but you'll see why in a bit. Um, I kind of realized like, okay, here's I have a, here I have an opportunity to ask myself, I have an error. I need to understand why there's an error. So I kind of need to refresh my skills on the previous version. And now I need to look at the documentation if it exists. Mm. And then more or less like figure it out like, okay, how does it get translated? Is it really something part of the migration guide or do I really need to go learn about this framework? One of the things that I can give as an example is one of the big architecture change for Fluent, the ORM from three to four is in Vapor 3, it was doing a lot for free for you, meaning that you could take your JSON object that gets converted into a real, let's say, either a struct or a class, a Swift class. And because they respect the conforms to some of the Vapor pro- exposed protocols that they want you to confirm for saying like, okay, this object represents a data payload that I will receive on my API and also represents a database model. Fluent was able to quickly understand that your id field was your id your like primary key from your database and really serialize it to the database directly with fluent 4 they were like yeah no that 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 automatic behavior was really a bad idea and they're going back using the property wrapper which made their api simpler while not automatic meaning that they could they would excuse me let the developer Say, okay, this field's mapped to that field in the database. This field maps to that field in the database so that you don't have future problem where you've built your application around your objects that comes as a JSON payload, gets directly saved in the database, and then, oh, poof, uh, sorry, the database data model has changed or needs to yeah, change yeah. in such a way that it's no longer compatible, and I run into one of those problems. But to get to that understanding of both three and four, I needed to really start to understand how does Vapor 3 or even Fluent 3 gets data out of the database? And how does Fluent 4 gets data out of the database? And that's when my learning experience meant I started to learn how this tool works. Not, oh, you tell me what to do. Like, I want to do an API which returns me, like, to-dos. It's like, okay, yeah, I can understand that they fetch it there, but, like, I don't care. Like, this, I see that these characters means go fetch it from a database, but I don't really ask myself, like, how does get transformed into SQL statements? How can those be modified to filter and things like, or how does the serialization and digitalization happen? And that's when I kind of had my aha moment for this framework and really started to really, it really started to click more than it used to do. So Throughout this journey of updating, I started to learn, started to better understand, and started to realize that even the changes they were proposing, and I was not like 
a real big Vapor 3 developer. I did a tutorial. I've looked at the code base we had. I tried my best to try to implement a new functionality and failed miserably. And after three or four days of doing this migration, I was like, my goodness, this framework is so easy to understand now. And I was also going to the next level, which is to say, oh, I get why they did this change, because now the syntax is a bit simpler. Or now Swift has evolved so much that it simplified this way of fetching data. And that's, this is literally where I had my aha moment, part of this migration, uh, even if, again, A, my concepts of backend development, abstracting Swift language are really, really bare bones. Um, and realizing that I was starting to understand how the non-blocking uh, IO way with uh, Swift and IO that Vapor is using to to do that, like with the future and the promises and all that fun stuff from more or less reactive programming. I was like, oh yeah, it started to click in such a way that I was not expecting to click in three or four days like it kind of happened before. I kind of went into this project expecting that I would hit my my head on the table multiple times per hour. And that happened a bit. But overall, I went from zero to real confident like I can do something quick by more or less rewriting this application part of a migration or framework upgrade. Because in the end, with the evolution of Swift and from, I, I think the project in Vapor 3 was in Swift 4.2. And yes, you can say that Swift 4 to 5, there were changes, but I think in the recent months and the past two years even, what has happened with Swift is it gets a lot of small functionalities that I feel for iOS developers, they are like nice to have, but because the APIs we use daily don't take advantage of them, we don't see the possible the possible benefits that it can improve for those APIs. But with backend development, we're using Swift or even using Vapor, the current developers, like when they see something from Swift, they're like, we use it. That's why I think last week they already updated most of Vapor's frameworks to use async await from Swift 5.5. And that is not something I'm used to uh, with iOS development because those people are really passionate about Swift and they are taking advantage of Swift functionality. I still don't like really understand property wrappers, but <laughs> let me tell you, I've used them plenty because Fluent uses them to allow you to do this mapping of your object's property maps to a database column. Yeah, it's really interesting because right now, like backend development using Swift is kind of, uh, not even just kind of, I'm pretty sure it is the biggest uh, ecosystem right now using Swift in a purely Swift way. Uh, even though like iOS and Mac development are probably more popular than backend development in Swift, uh, you're always sort of tied to the Objective-C runtime legacy that's all of the frameworks on, or most of the frameworks are built on top of. So you can like add little sprinkles of Swifty stuff all over the place, but you can't really be 100% pure Swift at the moment, uh, unless you do something like in Swift UI and you really mm-hmm. like really basic um so it's really interesting that like vapor is sort of this 
place, this playground for all of the new Swift technology, and they can embrace it as much as they want because ultimately, like all that matters is you can deploy Swift on the platform, and you—that's all that matters, really. Uh, and I never really thought about it that way until now, but it makes a lot of sense. It also sort of explains a lot about the weird kinds of pitches that are made to the Swift evolution list because mm-hmm. it has a lot of their weird interests uh, in mind and it's not necessarily always the best for uh, what app developers need. Um, but that is an issue we covered already on my other episode in the past. So we don't need to go into that, but it's, it's very interesting to see uh, like what that little ecosystem does to Swift as a language and just how much they get out of Swift compared to iOS and Mac developers. Right. And, even if I compare it with iOS development, like I don't feel that the type of migration I went through from three to four, I've ever experienced that as an iOS developer. No. Maybe when you decided, let's say you, you were dependent and I not, it, I haven't even lived through that because like, let's say you, you work on a project that was really using like, let's say reactive, so RX Swift. So it was really a reactive project. And guess what? The new development team decides scratch that that was a bad idea let's not use that let's be combined in swift ui like i never lived a difficult decision like this to scratch a framework and then move to another one some people might say that the swift two to three migration the great renaming as it's always always known for i don't feel it is exactly the thing because it was just similar api renamed differently they were not exposing new functionalities and one thing that was really interesting from that migration is I started to learn new functionalities of Swift in a way that was like, huh, now I understand their usefulness. And I think it relates to your point about Swift evolution, meaning that sometimes you like you read, or if you want to read them, but you read the proposal and it's like, why is this useful? Like, yes, they were giving you concrete examples, examples of how the API or the functionality will look like in a code base. But to see them being applied in a real code base, if you allow me to call it this way, was quite interesting. And what I would say, what was refreshing uh, compared to what I used to do on, oh, I shouldn't say what I used to do, but what I do on the iOS side of things is I felt that even if I wished, like even if I was already doing Swift UI for last year, I didn't, I wouldn't feel as bleeding edge as I felt while doing Vapor 4. Even if today Vapor 4 is at 4.52, like I'm really past the Vapor 3 to 4 migration, which was quite funny because that kind of brings me a bit to the documentation and the community support. Because when I started to look at the migration, I was like, okay. Like, I think Vapor 1, 2, 3, and 4 still have their docs live on the web, which is... That's good. Yeah, major thumbs up. Uh, it seems to me, if I look at the quantity of documentation from th- uh, from Vapor 3, it seems that Vapor 3 might have peaked at 3, because lots of pages, whether it is good or not, I don't really know. But if you could just <laughs> compare it with the quantity of information, not the quality, uh, there's a lot. And I was comparing it with Vapor 4 and it's like, oh, okay, there's a lot, lot less chapters. Uh, the migration, dare I say guide, because it's a one pager, uh, <laughs> but I think it's like 
two three screen eye of content is still a one pager and that's when i realized that okay yes like we're late Let's be totally honest, it's a side project. Yes, it is used by most of iOS and QAs, iOS QAs, iOS developers and QAs, excuse me. Uh, but like we maybe should have done that in 2020, not in, tw- in late 2021. But reading the guide and then it's like, I don't understand. Like I see what they asked me to do. Yes, it fixed this error, but then I have 10 other errors around the same area that I have no concrete example. And that's when you just start to read the documentation. You switch from, I'm migrating away from 3 to 4, and I'm like, let's learn how this framework works in Vapor 4, or Fluent 4 how it works. And that's what you start to see the patterns. And and it started to change my opinion. Not that I had the pejorative opinion about the documentation, but it was, again, I was not really reading from top to bottom. Like I was kind of really navigating through it reading the portions that I felt were important, but there was a bit of a scavenger hunt to figure out what portions were important, searching and things. And that's when I realized that even if compared to Vapor 3, there might be less content, the content is really well-focused because a lot of the problems I ran into, they were explained when you were going through the normal documentation that was teaching you how to use those frameworks. And even then, sometimes... There's things you can find. And because it is bleeding edge, small community on the web, you cannot go on Stack Overflow like you do on iOS. There might be some yeah. content, but it's really hard. I was going to say earlier that, um, like, the, I think it was Marco a long, long time ago, maybe even build and analyze days, uh, who said, like, you never want to be the biggest user of a certain server-side technology or whatever because then when there's an issue that you only notice at scale or whatever uh you're the first person to deal with it right right and that was sort of the worrisome thing especially after sort of ibm backed out of the whole back-end development with swift thing which i'm assuming you're going to get to eventually yes is like oh cool so now that this community that was pretty small to begin with is now even smaller and orphaned off in this little corner of the internet. Uh, do I really want to get on board that train and risk being like one of the big users of this thing? Uh, and I guess it's not as bad for you because it's an internal tool and therefore like you're not going to be banging on it with all your users. Right. Uh, but it's still a worry that I would have personally, not that I'm like averse to trying weird shit. I'll do it all the time, but it's like, (laughs) you have to still be smart about how you choose your technology. Agreed. And again, um, I haven't revisited that exact topic of like, what would be our plan B if like that technology would die tomorrow. Um, But again, uh, to build an internal app store, again, we could literally go back to Visual Studio App Center like literally tomorrow because we're still using it for crash reporting. And I know throughout the past few years, there's even more a bigger proliferation of those tools. And even at some point, it seems that this flight might be more uh, well-suited for having multiple builds from different branches and all that fun stuff. But uh, I digress on that topic. It does mean, though, that once you run through the documentation, once you run through Stack Overflow, you're left with two things. As you mentioned, Swift Server as a work group, and a lot of the content is either on a Git 
on a GitHub account called Swift-Server or on the Swift forums. But again, this is more about the Swift workgroup. Yes, there's a section about Vapor, but the most community support you can have today uh, is Discord base. So they have a Discord group channel. Uh, Technically, it's called a server, but it's not a server, but you know what it means. Okay. Thank you. I was looking for their word. So they have a Discord server. And I had a couple of questions like, I'm running into this problem. Please help me out. But I was worried at first because <laughs> they have uh, groups of rooms and the Swift, uh, the Vapor 3 to 4 migration was in a group called Legacy. And I'm like, okay, I'm really <laughs> late to this shit. Uh, but I digress. Uh, I think one of the big maintainers, uh, OX, so the OX, uh, Tim, I forgot his exact name, but Tim something, who's also part of the Swift server workgroup. Uh, was really helpful. Like it was like I was running to the issue, uh, one issue, and one of my issue was literally the way Vapor uh, Fluent three was uh, serializing objects to the database was not compatible with the way Fluent four was doing that. And I was like, what should I do? I don't really know what to do except just do a database migration by end. And the answer was more or less do a database migration by end. But uh, trying to figure out why Sw- Vapor 3 or Fluent 3 was doing it and how Vapor 4 was not doing it was kind of like a journey I didn't want to. So in the end, I was just like more or less doing that. Uh, and yeah, one thing I, while I enjoy having support and it felt pretty responsive because to this day, I think I've installed this, I've installed Discord for the first time ever on any devices I ever owned. That was my first experience with You're Discord. You're lucky. Um, I guess we can talk about that uh, maybe as a post episode or something, but <laughs> TLDR, it is really a bad slack. So yeah. just saying, but we can have a, an episode later about Discord, but I was pretty happy and I've seen even if since I've stopped working on this project that there's a lot of active members and not only uh, contributor to the code base, a lot of people are helping each other, which is really reassuring. But the main problem with Discord is it's full of content, full of knowledge, and it's super hard to figure it out. Yep. This is a big issue that, like, it's weird because, like, of course, this impacts, like, every video game ever. Like, Mm -hmm. people are not making wikis for video games anymore. They're making Discord servers with a billion channels, and they're dumping knowledge into chats and it's as an old person on the internet is it it is infuriating because it makes no sense and this is how kids think and i don't understand and like i i understand like the flip side uh because uh like there is this community of people who maintain fighting game wikis and they bitch all the time on twitter about how (laughs) everything is in discord and it fucking sucks uh and naturally they administer wikis but the problem is when a big fighting game comes out all the wikis go down because they have to maintain the wikis on servers and like discord is in the cloud somewhere so you don't have to worry mm. about the discord server going down and you don't have to worry about server costs or yeah. stupid fucking fandom wikis uh you don't have to worry about that stuff if you just dump it in discord so it's like i understand like the f- the lowest friction option for a lot of people is just dump it into discord even though that's not really what it's a tool for and it enrages a bunch of people 
But the flip side is, well, get a proper wiki and have fun administering it for the rest of your life and hope it doesn't become too big. Otherwise, you're going to have to pay for it. <laughs> right. And I'm happy to see that Vapor is really community driven. I know they add kind of a, and again, I've barely looked at that when they were alive for this, but they seem to have kind of their Heroku style platform to host Vapor application, which more or less, I think, 18 months ago, they closed it, they shut it down. I would have assumed because it was not really popular, sadly. But I think it meant that they had to scale down a lot of other things, which would explain, again, why possibly documentation, while Mm -hmm. in the end I feel it's really well-written, is not as quantitative or there's not enough content compared to what Vapor 3 was because possibly where a lot of the money was spent is when Vapor 3 was in its prime. And the thing, I don't know what was the support back then. I don't know if it was uh, Discord-based. I would assume so because there was room for Vapor 3 to 4. Uh, <laughs> but I wouldn't be surprised that there was somebody that is paid to take the content, to take the issues and put it in documentation or like write content for this. And maybe now it's a bit harder. I actually have a question about deploying these apps. Okay. Like, if I take a look at Go and how you write web apps in Go, uh, which at a high level sort of mimics what I expect from a language like Swift, um, you compile a binary and the binary contains its own web server. Is that sort of what you get when you compile a binary of a web app with Swift, you have a web server embedded in the binary or it's just some module that you pass to a web server that has a Swift module? Like, how does that work? The way it is set up at at work, it's a bit strange, but again, even it doesn't really fit our deployment target. I was talking with with, uh, the SRE that helped my colleague setting it up and he's like, yeah, it doesn't fit our deployment practices and blah, blah, blah. So maybe I'll know more about that. But my understanding is it, you might need to correct me because, again, my knowledge is a bit bare bones. But you decide. I mean, I don't know anything about vapor. So no, <laughs> I, if I say something stupid that makes no sense whatsoever for oh, backend okay. development, I meant is that when you start the application, you tell it on which port you want to listen. So in yeah. theory, you could literally like map your port on the server to that. But the recommendation is not to do that, and it is to proxy through nginx. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's pretty pretty standard. Okay. Right. This is not what we do because it can also be Dockerized, of course. And that's more or less right. what we do. Uh, so it is Dockerized and it can be run on GCP Kubernetes. But again, still that part I'm still uh, trying to figure out. But uh, that's the more or less recommend if you want to run it on, I guess, your Baybone server because you would install NGNX yourself. Uh, they recommend you do that. They recommend DigitalOcean in their documentation and Heroku. Or that you dockerize it, which they have examples on how to do it properly. Or their recommendation, I should say. Uh, and once it's dockerized, the world is your oyster. Right? You can do whatever you want with this Docker image and do any fancy deployment that I barely understand. Yeah, but I, I'm not in that world either, so right. I can't help you there. But I think more or less to answer your question is you can do simple setup and you could scale it to like really extensive, like multiple servers that are taking relay when one goes down, they're running the same application. And 
all the magic tools like again I mentioned like Kubernetes that does the thing, these things for you and then kills your application when you want to deploy a new Docker image and all that fun stuff like it also supports that which I think for allowing maybe bigger teams or bigger companies to use it I think is pretty interesting but again goes back to your point about uh, Mario's past comments is do you want to be the one the biggest user of yeah. that technology maybe not last but not least I use a lot to command F to come back to Discord uh, so <laughs> I guess that works and for a lot of the cases it did work I was able to find common error messages and things alike and it meant that in the end I asked for the main problem about serialization and that was the only thing I asked about because all the other problems I was able even if Discord's command F UI and functionality sucks uh, I was able to find the information I needed so you could say that I didn't suck because I found the information needed but um, I agree with you like I don't want to be too much philosophical about things, but it kind of made me realize that we base a lot, we we put a lot of knowledge, whether it was at work, whether it was friends, in chat rooms, whether they are iMessage, Slack, Discord, Facebook Messenger, Lime, name them. And then multiple times per day, I'm like, where the fuck I seen this tweet? Or where did I store that again? And... I guess that's our new world right now, but that I think is a bit sad because uh, chat software are great for chat. They're not great to store knowledge. And I think people that's are... That's honestly sort of why I started the knowledge base on my website because I was sort of like, I need a centralized place where I can catalog a bunch of weird knowledge about stuff that I do and easily be able to share it with people without like having to type it out into a Discord room every single time. Uh, and like... I think it's pretty effective for me right now and it's helped a lot with like organizing a lot of my information and I'm trying to get more into like personal knowledge management and all that stuff with like bookmark managers and tagging and all that stuff but it's like it's kind of overwhelming and there are so many different ways to do it that it's it's probably a future episode on the show honestly Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, I wish groups would come back to the idea of using wikis because wikis are really good at what they do if people maintain them which is a big if uh it's just like so much stuff has been dumped into chat rooms that it's kind of infuriating and i'm sure there's a lot of questions that could easily be answered if someone had a wiki page with information on it instead of like giving up and command f in slack or whatever good so next point I think it's kind of another uh, realization. Realization number one part of this journey uh, as a really as a developer going through different technology is I have to rethink sometimes how I learn new technology. I think that was cl- pretty clear earlier in the episode. The other part, and I think it's more a reflection about my skills and and my strong approach show off uh, a little bit show off e. But that's not on purpose. It was really reflecting about how I literally improve as a developer in the past few years was that in some moments, because again, Vapor is fully open source. So you literally have the code base uh, and you can literally go dig through it. And I realized that, um, I guess it also could be a compliment of the Vapor code base is I was like, I was trying to understand something part of the Postgres driver. And I literally dig through it. And after a couple of hours, I was like, ah, oh, that's how it works. 
And I always felt, even previously, um, maybe a couple of years back, that when I had to, to do those types of digging in a code base, even if it's a code base I knew, I was always dreading those moments because that's where I would get lost easily. Even if I knew the code base, like a lot of like state management and then knowledge of the code base or like your brain becomes the computer to run the program and things alike. And it made me realize that that skill that I think is really important for a developer to sharpen throughout their career has been sharpened and has evolved a lot in the past few years. And that was kind of another realization I wanted to mention because um, it was challenged in a different way that I was used to be because with iOS, if you want to know what's happening in the in foundation on UIKit, like tough luck, you have to exercise it like literally as uh, a QA person that doesn't look at the code and just plays with your application. You need to figure it out this way because you don't have access to the code base. Or you ask a friend with IDA Pro to dump the source code <laughs> to UIK. Right, or uh, look at Upper, which I use uh, yeah, recently uh, to understand a bug in a third-party SDK we have at work, which was also funny. Fun, fun, fun. Good. Uh, next up, I want to talk about the other products that are similar to Vapor and the Swift Server Workgroup. Uh, I forgot the exact date when the Swift Server Workgroup was created, but its purpose is to promote Swift usage in the server world. And today, like currently, uh, the work group is composed from people from Apple, from the Vapor uh, framework, from Amazon, and from MongoDB. Uh, they recently changed people, so uh, um, if I forget somebody, that could be why. Uh, but again, that's documented in the Swift forums, and Swift forums, the section for server, where they talk about their update, their pitches, proposals, ideas. But more like is, and I think, if I recall correctly, that's kind of a recent addition to the Swift community by Apple. And I think it's it's kind of a good first step, meaning that Apple, while focusing on a lot of things with Swift, shows that they want, or the people managing Swift, wants to make sure that Swift has its place in the server world and is allowing the community to be part of that like push and making sure that the language gets evolved or to promote things. Uh, for example, they have on the Swift website a list of more or less recommended package if you want to use Swift on the back end um, and that their opinion about like where they are at at the maturity level uh for example the criterias i tried to find the, the exact meaning of criterias unclear but i do know that every six months they evaluate whether a package should move to the next level stay at the current level or that be downgraded because they rewrote it and it doesn't fit the criteria they, they wanted so it is pretty interesting but the other the main downside to this is that it seems like a side project like i've used vapor as a side project i've encountered people that are basing their own life on this technology part of the discord like they're literally building backend services using this technology but the fact that kind of seems to have some traction but not too much uh 
I wouldn't be surprised that because Swift runs on Linux, but not on all Unix distribution, makes its appeal to certain Unix nerds uh, less ideal. Uh, that it could explain why in the recent two, three years, I start to feel that this is losing ground. It's not really getting more traction. It kind of peaked a bit and then it's slowly but surely decreasing. You, Yannick, mentioned uh, Kutura. That was that was from IBM and that by the end of September of this year, if I recall correctly, again, it is properly documented in the Swift server forum, uh, but you can find that uh, they've officially moved this project out of IBM and made it uh, a community-driven project like what Vapor is. So the big push that we've seen from IBM about using Swift and especially using Swift in the background, and I, I recall attending AllConf in the past few years before the pandemic, where IBM was quite present, uh, and even Vapor and other people, but they were, especially IBM, I remember attending a couple of sessions from them about using Ketura and then promoting it. It seems that at least IBM, as a cloud, like cloud platform provider, literally lost interest for Swift on a server, and it's more or less like, yeah, you can still run it on a server, but we're not putting money behind it no more. Which is, I think it's sad. Uh, I don't have personal experience with Kutura. Again, from my research, even the past few years, like there was Kutura, there's Swift Perfect that was kind of, seems still alive, uh, seems to be kind of like made by a smaller company. So again, if IBM doesn't really believe in so on the server, do you want to uh, trust a smaller company even to do that for you? Kind of it or miss, I would say. But again, I don't have clear experience. But even... Th- when those three were quote unquote fighting to be the top one, it was always told by the community that yeah, Vapor is uh, the topmost player, and I'm I'm still happy to see that it's alive. Uh, I hope it continues to be alive. It seems to be well developed. I think in the past uh, ten days since I stopped playing on this, on touching this project, there's multiple releases. I mentioned the async awake. Async await releases. I think today there was a couple of bug fixes released to fix a couple of big fixes. Or I think today's release was about uh, missing API that were not exposed using async await, uh, but ex- that those API were still exposed using the quote unquote old way using futures and things like So it's getting, it's always improving, which that is reassuring. But while I liked to not have to focus on two things, which is learn a new language and learn backend development. It seems that the more we continue in time, the more this is becoming less, possibly less a possibility for me because I feel that Swift on the backend's future is uncertain. I hope that I'm wrong. I won't lie. I hope that I'm wrong because... I left this experience of modernizing this uh, this code base to Vapor 4 with an empowerment that I didn't have when I did play a bit with Vapor 3. And I don't think it's about the magish. It's about Vapor 4 itself. I think it's a mix of a lot of things that I mentioned in this episode. But one thing that I am for sure really grateful for from this experience is now I feel that 
especially using this technology, and I'm sure it's, it will translate to other languages and other frameworks, is I feel more empowered to build those uh, small services that is database-based or even websites and things like that. Uh, I rarely did in my programming career or just my, by programming, having fun writing things. Um, so that's that. And the other aspect is I felt it was really fun to be on the bleeding edge. But if I reflect, and I think repeating what Marco has said, I think was my the downside of the double-edged sword for this is I'm unsure if today as a web developer, I would really open to go to this, knowing that the support not is it or miss, but again, we can continue talking for the next 30 minutes about Discord and all that fun stuff. Uh, but again, I this last point is really counterbalanced. Lots of bug fixes, lots of improvements, and it seems to continue to evolve with Swift, as mentioned with Swift 5.5 and async await. So you're on the bleeding edge. Support still seems to be around, but be 100% sure you're on the bleeding edge and it has its downside because, as we mentioned, you don't want to be the biggest user of such technology. I mean, perfect example here is Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Twitter was using Ruby on Rails early on. It was one of the first big websites to be using Ruby on Rails at scale. Mm -hmm. And I think they regretted it because there was a fail whale meme for a reason. Uh, it was always down all the time until they moved the timeline stuff off of Rails and into Scala. Uh, there was a huge uh, deal about that. Uh, I believe Alex Payne was responsible for that change inside of Twitter at the time, and it was a big, big deal. And once they moved to Scala, like things became much, much more stable. Uh, and it queued a bunch of Rails can't scale jokes and all of that stuff. <laughs> Nowadays, Rails is pretty good because it's had like literally 10 years to mature. Yeah. Uh, but back in the day, it was pretty rocky. And I think like the biggest advantage you could get really uh, aside from if you have personal language uh, familiarity with swift is you can technically share code between your ios apps and your uh your backend if you move to a technology like vapor and that's great it's just what if your app becomes a hit and then you have to scale it good luck finding people who are familiar with vapor to hire on a dime like at five minutes notice you can't do things like that uh it's a lot safer to go with uh i mean rails isn't even popular anymore uh but to go with node.js or whatever mm -hmm. uh, on the back end and have like literally too many developers uh on the market uh that you can just grab up and hire to help you scale or whatever uh i i'm not a hiring manager i'm very bad at hiring developers <laughs> so uh <laughs> interpret everything i'm saying with a grain of salt no, but I understand your point, which uh, made me realize that I forgot to mention one thing regarding the bleeding edge. One of the issues I ran into, which again, it's like Amazon Web Services are pretty popular, but the library we're using in Vapor 3 to talk to S3 was, was not a Vapor library, was a third-party library, never got updated to Vapor 4. And it meant hmm. that you cannot use it. Literally, it's not compatible. Uh, yep. And again, in the end, there was this uh, Soto project, S-O-T-O, uh, which seemed to be kind of a 
project that was an official AWS project that got moved into a community-driven project because more more or less <laughs> this is like a Swift a, a Swift framework to, to talk to any AWS pro- product uh, from a Swift language, which pretty interesting. Seems to be pretty popular, but. The downside of that is literally like you move version, you like try to do maintenance on your your code base and then boom, you realize that something that was popular is no longer popular or cannot be used because the maintainer is more or less gone. Uh, and that was, re- that was in the middle of the week that I realized that and I was like, oh fuck, can we really move to Vapor 4? And again, a couple of Googling, a couple of Discording, and I realized that, okay, there's a replacement. I might have to rewrite a bit of the uh, S3 integration we were using because, of course, the framework don't work the same way. But, like, you cannot imagine you realize part of your business needs. Like, okay, we need to do this and we need to stay up to date or there's a security hole in the library. It's like, oh, yeah, Nobody's maintaining it anymore. So either you take care of it or you try to figure out if there's a replacement. I wrote a whole article that's actually on my knowledge base literally about this uh, a couple months ago. Uh, I think it was called like um, in favor of dependency. What's oh, the last yeah, word? yeah, yeah. That rings a bell. I forgot the last yeah. word too, but I think I... Or was it like dependency adversion or... Yeah, in favor of dependency aversion. Yeah. Uh, which was literally all about like, here are all the reasons why you shouldn't have a lot of dependencies in your project and keep it to an absolute minimum. And here's all the things that can go wrong with dependencies. And like literally one of the things was like, yeah, uh, a lot of libraries, like this was written, uh, like I, I wrote it about some of the .NET stuff that I was maintaining at work. And it's like, oh, this is a library that was ever only like committed once to in GitHub. And it worked for like the these three versions of the .NET framework that they used it at their job for. And then it stopped working after that. And it's like, well, you better not build your entire business around that library. Otherwise, you're kind of fucked. Uh, and you sort of have to think about, well, uh, do I have the knowledge to maintain this library myself? Do I have someone else on the team that can maintain this library? Do I write my own library to replace it? Uh, all that kind of thinking process uh, and it goes all the way back to when we were doing uh, jailbreak iOS development right is like I didn't want to use Theos which was the popular uh, <laughs> cool kids way of making jailbreak tweaks because I'm like hello if Theos breaks I have no idea how to fix my build process it's a good thing I was friends with the person who made Theos so I could ask them questions but it's like it's safer for me to just maintain my own make file and know exactly how the entire chain works. And at the same time, I'm getting smarter. So it's not a bad thing uh, than it is to build my entire living around this thing that could disappear at any moment. Totally true. And I think the, your TS example is one of the main reasons why, well, for sure, I don't do jailbreak deployment no more. But for sure, if I were to try to rebuild uh, my only tweak, what's called uh, Salomon Switcher, I'm sure I cannot because that is heavily dependent on all Xcode and TOS. So that's sad. Uh, but yeah, does this mean I dislike Vapor because of that? Not really. Again, because I don't do backend development for my real day-to-day job, uh, I think it's totally fine. I've seen if you're part of the, the Vapor... Discord, you've seen people doing real business with that. And it's funny, I think I was reading a blog post or 
I forgot how I came across this person uh, and their vapor work, but their vapor work is literally a SaaS service doing an internal <laughs> app store, which literally they answer a question or I saw a blog post about a thing they tried and then they're talking about their business. I'm like, ah, okay, we're doing the exact same thing, more or less. <laughs> I think theirs is more or less uh, like there was a web portal and a lot of things and it was Android uh, compatible too. It was, it was cross-platform. So that was funny. But again, showed me clear example of people doing real business work on that technology, which is reassuring. But yeah, if I were to build a server for myself to help me with my iOS apps that project that I do, maybe I would consider it mainly because it uses it uses the tool i know xcode and the languages swift uh but more than that i might end up if i were to start a business or things like yeah i would be maybe a bit hesitant but at least one of the things if you decide to use it is you need to be aware that you might have to become a maintainer of that library and if you're okay with that trade-off which i think is fair uh do so uh, because a lot of the maintainers are also consultant for this technology which makes total sense to me so so yeah so overall uh i really enjoyed my uh vapor experience of 2021 uh i'm really starting to build a bit of a like a feature roadmap again for this project that hasn't been hasn't seen love in the past two years um so i'll keep you all posted on my new learnings when i go through those features but the best example again leave to you is uh in the app we have a feed of all the builds that are being uploaded, but we don't have a view that shows you like the builds group by application. And I recall that when after my tutorial, that was one of the first thing I tried. And it, funnily enough, I even add the stash in my Git repository on my work machine. <laughs> and I recall I, oh, I spent an hour or two trying to figure it out. After this week or so more of work, I literally do it in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it worked. And I was like, I like I remember struggling to try to make something work. And now after this week of exploring the technology, like I feel that I could even pick it up in three, four, six months and be like, oh yeah, I kind of remember what I need to do to make things work. And that was really kind of the aha moment after that whole migration. Yeah, it's funny. It kind of parallels the satisfaction that I had when Cesar actually got to play music from a playlist for the first time. And it was like, yay, I still got it. I can still learn things <laughs> and make shit work. Oh, yeah. My skills haven't atrophied over like the last five years of using Windows at work. And it's funny because I think this is more or less the morale of this episode is literally like, yeah, I showed to myself I was able to do something a bit outside of my comfort zone. It's not like fully outside of my comfort zone, but for sure, backend and development is, was always been something that I kind of barely understand, but that I didn't feel I was skilled enough for this. But now after this project, I feel really empowered and I'm sure I'll encounter roadblocks when I try to implement some, some of the feature. But as you mentioned in your scissor episode, it's time to learn something new if that happens. Yep. And that's it about my experience with Vapor. Cool. 
So if you want to find the show notes for this episode, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 171. You can also go listen to our entire back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. The podcast is on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. I am on Twitter individually at Sakurina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A, and Ducadivier is at Lucanoche, that's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.